see if this works. So, if you go to Schoology, I have to plug it in. Have you guys had problem with the Wi-Fi today? It's been nonsense all week. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it does. I don't know. It's been it's been wonky all week. Um, I just had to keep trying. <laughs> Honestly, that's I mean literally just rebooting my computer and turning Wi-Fi off and on for like ten minutes, and then it worked. That was like <laughs> literally that was the advice they gave me up front. So you know, um, if you can't get onto the the these questions right now, I this you, you can go back and listen to the recording if you want to, or if you want to. I, I don't have any hard copies, but I do have paper if you just want to write stuff down and you can enter it later. Do you want do you want some paper um, just in case? Okay. So if you go to Schoology, this is the, the assignment called the very first one, Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, chapters 8, 9, and 10. It's the one that has a link to the PDF and the audio version, which we listened to the last couple days. And then at the bottom, there's a document that has questions for chapters 8, 9, and 10. Those questions look like that. Um, and some of these we talked about already because we, listen, we were listening um, Monday and Tuesday. Sounds horrible. What is that? OK, so I'm going to go through these again kind of quickly. So chapter 8. Uh, I even wrote down page numbers, 208. Uh, the very beginning of chapter um, 8, we meet this guy named Campbell, right? His last name is Campbell. If you remember, we met him, something he wrote at least earlier about why American POWs are so bad, right? So we talked about how he was dressed, and he's dressed like this ridiculous superhero, essentially, right? So the question is, why does Campbell visit the American POWs? Remember, he comes and sees them in Dresden. He goes to their slaughterhouse and... Do you remember why he, he, he visits them? Anybody? Yeah. He's like literally he's coming to talk to American POWs and trying to recruit them to fight for the Germans against the Russians, right? And he is an American who has converted to Nazism, so he's also writing propaganda for the Nazis. And he's dressed like a ridiculous superhero, right? He has a giant 10-gallon hat on. He has black cowboy boots with swastikas on them. He has a blue unitard. You know, his bodysuit things with gold stripes up the side. I mean, he looks ridiculous. And then he comes in and says, hey, why don't you come fight the German? I mean, the Russians for the Germans. That's what he said. Okay. Number two, uh, how does Derby, this is Edgar Derby, the guy who was elected as the leader, right, of the Americans, right, because he's the oldest and the, the British guy assumed he was the wisest. How does Derby respond to Campbell? So remember, Campbell's trying to convince them. He's telling them all the stuff. He's offering them food. And basically, they don't care. They're just totally ignoring him. And Derby gets up and he says, "What? Remember? Is he is he all on board, or does he like no?" He says, "No." He says, "You're crazy." He's like, "What? One?" He calls him a snake, and he calls him a, a blood-filled tick, and then he's like, "No, that's even too good for you." Basically, he says, "Any of us would fight for freedom and not join you." Basically, you know, he's, he calls him out. And then there's this quote we'll get to in a second, uh, which is about that. Number four, no, sorry, number three. How does Billy meet Trout? This is Kilgore Trout. This is the, the science fiction author, right, that he learns about while he's in the veterans' hospital. Elliot Goldwater, I think, is his name. I've forgotten. His friend in the veterans' hospital who introduces him to science fiction, introduces him to Kilgore Trout. It happens that Kilgore Trout lives in the same hometown as, the same town as Billy Pilgrim, right? This is annoying me. Um, do you remember how he meets him? 
he is driving his Cadillac around the town, right? And he comes across, he's going down this alley and he sees this big group of kids. And he stops because there's a big group of kids in the middle of the world. He realizes they're all paper boys, right? And Kilgore Trout is their manager, sort of, right? He's the guy who sort of is, well, he's screaming at them to sell more subscriptions and he's being really nasty, but that's how he meets them. He waits around until they leave and he, know, he recognizes them from the book cover. Okay. Number four. In the midst of this, we learn about some various other books that Kilgore Trout has written because he uses a couple of phrases as he's screaming at these little kids that happen to be titles from his other books of his, right? One of them is The Gutless Wonder. And then it goes into this question. What does Trout, Kilgore Trout's story about robots say about the bombing of Dresden? Um, so if you remember, this is the story about the robots who drop jellied gasoline, right? What is it? It's on page 214. I'm going to read you a quick. This is super interesting, right? So the story is, um, this too is the title of a book called, by Trout called The Gutless Wonder, because he's calling one of the kids a gutless wonder. It was about a robot who had bad breath, who became very popular after his halitosis was cured. Halitosis is, t is the medical term for bad breath. Um, but what made the story remarkable, since it was written in 1932, was that it predicted the widespread use of burning jellied gasoline on human beings. Napalm, we talked about that. It was dropped from them, on them from airplanes. Robo robots did the dropping. They had no conscience and no circuits, which would allow them to imagine what, what was happening to people on the ground. So, so Trout's leading robot looked like a human being. He could talk and dance and so on and go out with girls. This is the part that's important. Nobody held it against him that he dropped jelly gasoline on people. But they found his halitosis unforgivable. But then he cleared that up, and he was welcome to the human race. So what does that say about Dresden? Like, think about that. That's the question, right? Right? I think it is. Blah, blah, blah. What does that, the story about robots say about the bombing of Dresden? So this robot is like dropping jellied gasoline on human beings, burning human beings alive, right? And people are like, that's okay. But his bad breath, that's, we can't, we can't deal with that, right? But when he, once he gets that fixed up, they're like, okay, you're cool, we're fine, right? So what does that say about the bombing of Dresden? So remember, when these people are dropping, I mean, you know, all bombardiers in, in especially in 1945, they have no idea where those bombs are landing. I mean, they know roughly, but they have no concept, right? They're just dropping. So the, do they have a personal connection to anybody on the ground? No. I mean, I just finished reading, oh, stop doing that. This great book that talks about, come back, come back. There, okay, that talks about how, you know, in warfare, not until Vietnam, in the Vietnam War, like something like 75% of people were killed by bombs, by, by distance killing, right? Not up, up close. People don't like to kill people up close. In fact, they're, they're sort of averse to it, right? So what does it say about the bombing of Dresden? Was there emotion involved? Was there a connection between the people on the ground and these people dropping the bombs? I mean, imagine yourself. Could you be a bombardier? Could you drop one of those incendiary bombs and be responsible for you know, the death, as Kurt Vonnegut says, which probably isn't accurate, of 135,000 humans, right? That's the question here, right? So the robots do it because they have no feeling. Humans are cool with that, except if the robots have bad breath and then they're like, no. So it has to do with an inconvenient truth, right? Essentially. Okay. Uh, number two, what, do, what two lies does Trout, Trout, Kilgore Trout, tell Maggie White? So remember, Billy invites Kilgore Trout back to his, his house for his 18th wedding anniversary, right? Which happens to be in two days after he just met this guy. He shows up, he's the head of the party, he's talking to this woman named Maggie White, and he's, she's asking about being a writer, and he tells her two lies. 
right? So we talked about one of them already, right? The, um, you can go to jail if you write something that wasn't true, that wasn't really happened. That's, and we talked about how that's just not true. That's what fiction is, right? And then she talks about advertising and how, oh, the same thing applies to advertising. And we talked a little bit about how, well, I mean, you guys all, you've seen millions of ads. Are, mil are ads true? <laughs> sometimes, a little bit, and sometimes not at all. And sometimes they're not meant to be. Like if you watch an Apple ad, sometimes they're talking about what things their, their products can actually do. Sometimes they're just talking about a feeling that it makes you have, right? Which is just made up, right? So that's one lie. The other lie is she asks him what was his most famous piece of writing. And he says, it was, I wrote about the funeral of a great French chef, right? And then that all of the great chefs of the world walked by his casket and sprinkled herbs on his body. And it, while he's telling the story, he says, I'm making this up. <laughs> this is, I'm just totally making this up as I go. So he just totally lies to her. Twice. Uh, okay, number six, we talked a lot about yesterday. So why does Billy react to the barbershop quartet? The um, how does Billy react to the barbershop quartet? One, he feels sick. They think he's having a heart attack. He has to sit down. Why? So this is what we talked about yesterday. Remember, for him, this is his trigger. He remembers the bombing of Dresden because of the guards and how they, they reminded him of a, of a barbershop quartet while he was in the bomb shelter in Dresden. So for him, this is a trigger. Every time that comes up, he's going to have this adverse effect to it. I mean, adverse reaction to it. I'm going through these quickly. I know. I'm sorry. I'm still sort of figuring out this whole situation. Um, how does Billy describe Dresden after the firebombing? So if you remember, he says they couldn't come out of the bomb shelter until noon the next day. When they do, everything is destroyed, basically. But he, the main thing he says, it looks like the moon, right? All the buildings are rounded because they're all broken in, in big piles. There's, everything's smoldering. But basically, he says, it looks like the moon. And they were moon men. Um, number eight, this goes right along with that. What do the American fighter planes do after the firebombing? So there's a scene when they come out and they're sort of looking around and he's describing it as looking like the moon and these fire fighter pilots come down and start shooting at them because they're, like he said, it was very obvious that there should be no, nobody should still be alive, right? That's, that was the intent. So the bombers come in, I mean the fighters come in and start shooting at people. Now they don't hit any of those people, they hit some other people and kill some other people, but that's what they do. And then finally, from chapter 8, what do the Americans find in the suburb of Dresden? So remember, the German soldiers march them out of the city, and they come across a, basically an inn, right? A bed and breakfast, a big bed and breakfast, run by a family, and they put them up there for a little bit. That's kind of a quick synopsis. Okay, number 9, or chapter 9. What time is it? We have 42... In chapter 9, we learned a whole bunch of stuff. We didn't get all the way through a lot of chapter 9 listening yesterday, so hopefully you've gone back and read it or you've read it on your own, but I'll go through this anyway. Number one, how does Valencia die? Valencia is Billy's wife. We learn that she dies because, what, she has a car accident on the way to going to see Billy in the hospital when she finds out he was in a plane crash, right? As a result of the car accident, the exhaust falls off of her car, she keeps driving, and she dies of carbon monoxide poisoning. She makes it to the hospital, but she dies in the, an hour later. Um, as we heard yesterday, Billy ends up in the hospital with a guy named Rumford, whose last first name I don't remember, but he happens to be the historian for the Air Force. He's writing a history of air battle during World War II, and he wants to write about Dresden, and that Billy happens to have been in Dresden, so we hear sort of from back and forth between them. But the question is, 
what justifications and critiques of the firebombing of Dresden does Rumford read? If you remember, he's reading this book, um, and he, there are two citations, one from an American air general, one from a British. The American guy says, well, it was necessary, right, because nobody ever thinks about the sacrifice of the soldiers on the ground, right, that the Germans had been responsible for. This is their second world war. Something like five million Allied soldiers have been killed. So yeah, it was, it was worth it, right? And the British guy is like, well, maybe it wasn't worth it, but it still happened and these things happen in war, right? He says, maybe the people who, did, who ordered the bombing should have had a little bit more knowledge of what was going on on the ground, which is an argument Kurt Vonnegut makes a bunch of times in this book. Like, it's really easy to tell someone to go off and do something when you don't have to do it yourself, right? It's way easy to tell someone to go off and kill 135,000 people if you don't have to do it. And that's his point. But he also makes the point that in war, sometimes that happens. So those are the justifications. Those are two of them, at least. Number three, what did, Billy, what did the old man in Billy's past think about old age? There's this scene where Billy goes back in time to when he's 16. He's in a doctor's office. His thumb is infected. There's this old guy who's in agony because of gas, it says. And it, he keeps saying, I knew old age was going was to be bad, but I didn't know it was going to be this bad. Um, number four, how had the army improved Robert? Robert is Billy's son. Remember, we talked a bit about this yesterday. When Billy wakes up in the hospital, his son has been brought back from Vietnam, and he's standing over him, and he talks about how he looks great, basically. He looks like a you know, clean-cut military guy. He has, he's decorated. You know, um, he's, the, he's a leader. He's in the Green Beret, all this stuff. Um, so how had the Army improved Robert? What, and then what he remembers is when, when his, his son was in high school, he, one, he flunked out of high school. He was an alcoholic when he was 16. He got arrested for, for tipping over 100 gravestones in a Catholic cemetery. So he's making this, there's this weird dichotomy between this is who he was as a teenager, which was sounded pretty bad. As a result of going through the military, he's this other person, right? Now, he doesn't say whether that's good or bad. He just notices it. So whether it's good or bad is sort of your own opinion, but that's, what he's, that's how he, it looks like the military has improved his son, right? He's a leader now. He's clean guy. He is a sort of a stand-up guy. Okay. Okay. Um... Number five, what is Rumford, this is again the guy in the, who's in his hospital roommate while Billy's recovering from the plane crash. What is his opinion of Billy? Any ideas? Is it good or bad? <laughs> so bad. He's like, they should just let him die. <laughs> like literally he says this, right? Because he thinks, partially because he thinks Billy's brain damaged because Billy won't talk, right? And he's like, he's, you know, this is an un inappropriate term, but he keeps calling Billy a vegetable, right? He's just alive, he can't think. And literally, he says, they should just let him die. What he doesn't realize is that Billy is completely there and just not talking. <laughs> but he had a very low opinion. Uh, and this is interesting. We talked about this next, the, the, actually, 6 and 7, we talked to some about yesterday. What might, be, what might Billy choose as his happiest moment and why? So we talked yesterday. So remember, there's a scene back in Dresden where Billy's lying in the back of this wagon. Right? They've, they've got the, it's after the bombing. The Americans are driving this wagon around looking for stuff to take home as souvenirs. And Billy's just laying in the back of the wagon in the sun. Right? They, they're, they're going back to the slaughterhouse. They get there. Billy stays in the wagon laying in the sun. He says if he had to choose a moment that was happiest in his life, that's the moment he would choose. So why? Why do you think? So he doesn't choose 
the birth of his kids, his marriage, his like success in business. Why does it keep doing that? He chooses, sorry, I should have moved ahead. He chooses laying in the center of the back of this wagon in his destroyed city. Why, do you think? What is the one thing Billy wants throughout this whole book? He keeps saying. Right? He wants to be left alone. He's, he's always saying, just leave me here. Just leave me alone. Right? Is, when he's laying in the back of this wagon in the sun, is anybody asking anything of him? No. He's just here at that moment. Right? There's nothing else, at least for a little bit. So maybe that's why he says that this is his happiest moment. I'm not, I'm not agreeing with it. I'm just saying I think that's his, his thinking. Right? And then the next one, number seven, is what is the only thing Billy cries about in the war? And this is the same scene, right? He's laying there and he hears these people come up and they start talking and he, he, he's not sure exactly what they're saying at first and they're talking to the horses and then they come back to him and they're trying to figure out what language he speaks and they finally hit on English because they speak nine languages between them. And they start yelling at him for the way the horses look, right? Their, their mouths are bleeding. Their feet are totally torn up. They're thirsty, right? And Billy doesn't even realize it. And then he goes and looks at them and then he starts crying. And he said, that's the only thing I cried about during the war. So think about that. So what, like some of the things he's seen, right? And that's the thing he cries about. Okay. Still up there. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Number nine, is that where we are? Yeah. 253. So this is the quote. You guys have all heard this song. Well, I assume you've heard this song. Um, that it's actually one of the epigraphs of this book. But the question is, uh, what, number eight, why is the epigraph of the book away in the manger? And so it says here, I'm going to read this, this is page 50, 252 in chapter nine. Later on, a, as a middle-aged optometrist, he would weep quietly and privately sometimes, he would, but never would make loud boohooing noises. This is right after he says the only time he cried during the war was when he saw the horses which is why the epigraph of this book is the quatrain from the famous Christmas Carol. Billy cried very little, though he often saw things worth crying about. And in that respect, at least, he resembled the Christ of the carol. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but the little jo Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That's what he says. There's often things to cry about, um, but he cried very little about them. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but... And if you look at the beginning of the book, somewhere, that's the, one of the epigraphs of the book. So another one of those instances in which the author sort of is peeking through the veil of fiction, right? Okay. Number nine, what is Professor Rumsford's opinion of the raid on Dresden? Again, this is his roommate in the hospital who thinks that Billy should die. Even after he realized Billy was at Dre in Dresden, what is his opinion? Does he think it was a good thing or a bad thing? Right? He says he calls it a howling success. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. Right? Um, so that's basically the answer. Now, whether you agree with that is a different thing because it seems questionable to me. But, you know. Uh, number 10. So this is, this, this is part of we didn't get to re yesterday, but hopefully you looked at it later on. And eventually Billy goes to New York City because he wants to get on TV to tell people about Trothamidorians, right? Um, he ends up not getting on TV, but he ends up also in this adult bookstore um, on, in Times Square. 
And so number 10 is, what two acquaintances did Billy indirectly encounter in the tawdry bookstore? So two things. One, he goes in because he sees two novels by Kilgore Trout in the window. So he's like, I want to I, I buy those. So he doesn't realize really that it's an adult bookstore until he gets in the door. So that's one, Kilgore Trout. Second, as he's checking out, he's trying to buy these books and they don't even want to sell them to him because he's like, those are just props, basically. He sees a magazine, the title of, or the, the headline of which is, Whatever Happened to Montana Wild Hack? Right, so if you remember, Montana Wild Hack is the, the mate that the Trap Amadorians provide for Billy on Trap Amador. So those are the two people he sort of encounters. And then finally, what happens to Billy on the New York radio show? As you can imagine, like he finds his way into this radio show. They're supposed to be talking about the novel. He raises a hand to talk. Does he talk about the novel? No, he talks about aliens and Trap Amadorians and. So if that happened, if you were on a radio s program and someone started just talking about this other stuff, what do you think they would do? <laughs> well, they didn't stop, actually. They waited until a break, but then they expelled him very quickly. <laughs> right? They were like, he's gone. Okay. Number 10, chapter 10. This is the last chapter from, again, Kurt Vonnegut's perspective. Remember, this switches back just like the first chapter. Um, and it ties up a whole bunch of stuff. Um, for better or worse, you know. Let me scoot ahead. Okay, what does the author describe as one of his nicest moments? So again, this is on page 269. He says, when he was back in Dresden with O'Hare. Remember, he found his old buddy from the war, O'Hare, whose first name I've forgotten. And he convinces him to go back to Dresden with him to do research for this book, right? And he says, that was, oh, this is on page 269 of chapter 10. That was one of the, the, the nicest moments in his life. So again, that's not exactly the same thing as the happiest moment he says in the back of the, of the wagon, but you know, sort of that, I don't know. And number two, what does the author mean by the term corpse mind? So I don't know if you rem remember this part. So this is when Billy talks about once they came out in, in Slaughterhouse, I mean, in, in, when the, once they came out of Slaughterhouse after the bombing of Dresden, the Germans forced the American POWs to go rooting around through the rubble to find bodies. Right, um, he's paired up with this guy who's um, the, is, is a Maori, you know, like a native of Polynesia, Cook Islands, um, New Zealand. Maybe you've seen they often have facial tattoos, um, and their job is to move all these rocks and look for bodies. Right. So what happens? They find this sort of cavern, this like the cavern which was formed because of the way the rubble fell. And they send one of the German soldiers down there, and they realize this. So, what's the question? What does the, the what does the author mean by a term the term corpse mine? So that's what he calls it, corpse mining, right? Because they're sort of mining for corpses, they're digging for corpses. Uh, these all have to do with each other. How does the Maori POW die? This is the guy who was working with Billy. So one of the things they find is this big cavern that was formed because of the way rocks fell, and there's a bunch of bodies down there, and you know what happens when bodies lay around for a while, they start decaying, right? And it smells, if you've ever smelled anything dead before, it doesn't smell good. <laughs> and there's a bunch of it. So they find this mine and they, they're trying to send the, the POWs down there to get the bodies out. This guy who's working with um, Kurt Vonnegut, because at this point we're in chapter 10 where Kurt Vonnegut speaking, gets sick. In fact, he, he gets, they, he, they say he dies from having dry heaves, in which that means, you know, you, are, you vomit so much, there's nothing left in your stomach to vomit but you're still going through the motions of vomiting. I don't know if you can actually die from dry heaving, but that's what he says. If you can, that would not be a pleasant way to die, let's just say that. 
So, number four, number four what new technique of dis for disposing of corpses is devised? So as a result of this, they, have to th the, the they can't get the bodies out because they basically have liquefied, right? So what do the Germans do? Do you remember? They decide. What would you do? I mean, I guess you could just leave them, but they don't want to do that. So they decide, oh, flamethrowers. So they send in Germans with flamethrowers to incinerate everything. So basically, they're burning up the bodies with the flamethrowers. Um, number five, why do the Germans leave? They leave to go fight the Russians on the Russian front. So they just leave the Americans there, and they take off. And then finally, how does the book end? Why does, what does the bird say to Billy Pilgrim and why? This is on page 275, the very last page of the book. Um, this is actually the way it starts, too. Billy and the rest wandered out into the shady street. The trees were leafing out. There was nothing going on out there, no traffic of any kind. There was only one vehicle, an abandoned wagon drawn by two horses. The wagon was green and coffin-shaped. This is the wagon that he rode in that was, he was laying in the back end of, and he said this would be the, his happiest moment. The birds were talking. One bird said to Billy Pil Pilgrim, Poe tweets, the end. Right? He also says that at the very beginning, if you remember from chapter two, or I think it's chapter two. Actually, it's the end of chapter one. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Listen, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. It ends like this, Poe tweet. So why? What, I mean, that's supposed to be a, the sound a bird makes. So why? Why would that be the way this ends, do you think? Do you remember what he says about a massacre? Because he says this is a massacre. Can we, what can you say about a massacre? This is the end of chapter one. He talks about this. If you've seen something, like anything, that blows your mind because it's so awful, what can you say about it that makes sense? Right? He says nothing. You, there's nothing to say. There's nothing intelligible to say about a massacre. But he also says, what happens? I mean, if you've ever been to somewhere like you know, uh, a battlefield in this country, like say Gettysburg or some of the big battlefields from the Civil War. Now, they just seem like these giant, sort of very peaceful parks, right? I mean, so his point is, nature keeps going on. Like, the birds are always gonna be singing, regardless of what happens, right? Regardless of how awful humans are to each other, the birds don't really care on some level. They're gonna keep doing what they do, right? So that's why it ends the way it ends, if that makes sense. Stop turning off. Okay, how long do we have? Not long. Forty-two. Okay, I'll try to get through this other this other one real quick before we move on. This is the second assignment. In uh, let me pull it up. Nope. This one, the one that's called Slaughterhouse Five. What do you think? There's a Google slide thing attached to it. If you open it up, there's also um, a PDF of this, of which I have hard copies here, which you can read, which is a letter home he wrote as a POW um, when he was like 22. Uh, and so I'll read that to you if we have time in a second, but I want to go through this other thing first. So you can pull this up. There's a couple blank sheets for you to fill out on your own. And here's what it says. Uh, so back in chapter eight, there's a quote that says, there are almost no characters in this story and almost no dramatic confrontations because most of the people in it are so sick and so much the listless playthings of enormous forces. One of the main effects of war, after all, is that people are discouraged from being characters. What does that mean? 
So this is opinion. You're just, we're just basing it on that statement. So you just heard it, and it's on the board, so there's no reason why you shouldn't have an opinion. What does that mean? Right? Let's just look at the last sentence. What is the, one of the main effects of war, after all, is that people are discouraged from being characters. What does that mean in war? If you're a character, and that, by this they mean like a, an individual, I suppose, right? Do armies and do, does war encourage you to be an individual? No. I mean, if you are a commander or a leader in, you know, the army or in a war, do you want a whole platoon of individuals? No. Because then you have to deal with each one of them individually, right? You want them all to think like they're one thing, right? So in, in war, right, why would there not, why would there be this, this desire to have no character, no individuality, do you think? If, so this goes back to like the idea of bombing, right, in Dresden. Is it easier to send someone off to die who you know and like respect as an individual or who's just like a number, right? It's all about dehumanizing people, right? And letting them be this thing that's other than what they are, essentially, right? So what does that mean? That's what that means. So the next question is, do you agree with that? And there's no right or wrong answer here. You don't have to answer, but you can write it down. Yes or no? Do you agree with that's what's going on here and that it's necessary? Is it okay? I mean, kind of however you want to react to that is fine. But Kurt Vonnegut, or the narrator, says at this point, there are no characters in this book, except he says Edgar Derby is sort of a character at that one point. Because we're in a war, and the war doesn't encourage there to be characters. Because if there are characters, it makes everything much more, much more difficult. Right? You have to like, deal with someone <laughs> if, if you know something about them. OK. How long do we have? Oh, maybe I can get through this. Um, you can keep working on that if you want. There's a page. And the other one is this letters home. I put letters, but it's actually letter. It's one. And there, there are others, but this is the one I have. You can look at There's a PDF of it attached to the assignment. If you want a hard copy, you have one. I'm going to read it out loud to you real quick. Um, and here's what I want you to do. Do you notice any difference or similarities between the letter and the novel? In the way it's just the way it sounds, right? The language he uses tone, all that kind of stuff. Um, if, you, if you look at the PDF, it's 10 pages long, but that's only because there's a little bit of an introduction. There's the typescript of the letter itself, but then there's a translation into like actually readable script, and that's the one I'm going to read. So it, it seems like a lot, but it's not really. Um, so this was in 1945, I think. He's writing home. This is after he's been, yeah, May 29th, 1945, after he's been, been um, rescued, right? He's on his way actually back home. So this is the letter he writes. Indianapolis, Indiana, I remember that's where he's from. Dear people, I am told you were probably never informed that I was anything other than missing in action. Chances are that you also failed to receive any of the letters I wrote from Germany. That leaves me a lot of explaining to do. In pressus, which just means in summary. I've been a prisoner of war since December 19, 1944, when our division was cut to ribbons by Hitler's last desperate thrust through Luxembourg and Belgium. Seven fanatical panzer divisions hit us and cut us off from the rest of Hodge's first army. The other American divisions on our flanks managed to pull out. We were obliged to stay and fight. Bayonets aren't much good against tanks. Our, our ammunition, food, and medical supplies gave out, and our casualties outnumbered those who could still fight, so we gave up. The 106th got a presidential citation and some British decoration from Montgomery Ford, I'm told, but I'll be damned if it was worth it. I was one of the few who weren't wounded. For that much, thank God. Well, the Superman marched us, and he's referring to the Germans there, because that's, you know, the whole idea of, like, the 
Übermensch and stuff. Anyway. The Superman marched us without food, water, or sleep to Limburg, a distance of about 60 miles, I think, and we were loaded and locked up. 60 men to each small, unventilated, unheated boxcar. There were no sanitary accommodations. The floors were covered with fresh cow dung. There wasn't room for all of us to lie down. Half slept while the other half stood. We spent several days, including Christmas, on that Limburg siding. On Christmas Eve, even the Royal Air Force bombed and strafed our unmarked train. They got killed by 150, they killed about 150 of us. We got a little water Christmas Day and moved slowly across Germany to a large POW camp. I'm going to mispronounce all of these things. In Mühlberg, south of Berlin. We were released from the boxcars on New Year's Day. The Germans herded us through scalding, delousing showers. Many men died from the shock in the showers after 10 days of starvation, thirst, and exposure. But I didn't, obviously. Under the Geneva Convention, officers and non-commissioned officers are not obliged to work when taken prisoner. I am, as you know, a private. 151, I'm sorry, 150 such minor beings were shipped to Dresden to a Dresden work camp on January 10th. I was their leader by virtue of the little German I spoke. It was our misfortune. Uh, it was our misfortune to have a sadistic and fanatical guards, to have sadistic and fanatical guards. We were refused medical attention and clothing. We were given long hours of extremely hard labor. Our food ration was 250 grams of black bread and one pint of unseasoned potato soup each day. After desperately trying to improve our situation for two months and having been met with bland smiles, I told the guards just what I was going to do to them when the Russians came. They beat me up a little. I was fired as group leader. Beatings were very small. One boy starved to death and the SS troops shot two for stealing food. On about February 14th, the Americans came over, followed by the RAF, Royal Air Force. Their combined labors killed 250,000 people in 24 hours and destroyed all of Dresden, possibly the world's most beautiful city, but not me. After that, we were put to work carrying corpses from air raid shelters. Women, children, and old men died from concussion, fire, or suffocation. Civilians cursed us and threw rocks as we carried bodies to huge funeral pyres in the city. When General Patton took Leipzig, he, uh, we were evacuated on foot to the Czechoslovakian border. There we remained until the war ended. Our guards deserted us. On that happy day, the Russians were intent on mopping up isolated outlaw resistance in our sector. Their planes, P-39s, strafed and bombed us, killing 14, but not me. Eight of us stole a team and wagon. We traveled and looted our way through Suttonland and Saxony for eight days, living like kings. The Russians are crazy about Americans. The Russians picked us up in Dresden. We rode from there to the American lines at Hall in land, land Ford trucks. We've since been flown to La Harva, which is that airport. I'm writing from the Red Cross Club in the La Harva POW repatriation camp. I'm being wonderfully well fed and entertained. The state bound ships are jammed naturally, so I'll have to be patient. I hope to be home in a month. Once home, I'll be given 21 days recuperation at Atterbury, about $600 pack back pay, and get this 60 days furlough. I have too much, I'm sorry, I have too damn much to say, and the rest will have to wait. I can't receive mail here, so don't write. Love, Kurt Jr. The end. Okay, so what do you notice? Are there things that are similar from what you remember from the novel? Either events or tone? Let's talk about the tone first. Is it similar? Is he 
Is he trying, is he kind to be, I mean, he's talking about some pretty heavy, dark stuff, right? Is it funny? A little bit, right? A little sarcastic, right? He keeps saying, all these people died, these people died, but not me. I mean, obviously not me. He's, he's, he's written the letter, right? What about some of the events? Are these things that come up in the novel? Like uh, being on the box, in the boxcars, the train, being shot at by the, by, well, he says the, the Russians, but he's, the Americans is what he says in the novel. Um, being forced to work in Dresden. I mean, all that stuff really happened to him, right? I mean, assuming that the letter is true. I think it probably mostly is true. So I think it's really interesting that in, in many ways, the, the language in the novel and the language in this letter are really, really similar. You know, for someone to have gone through this kind of trauma and then to write about it much later. Remember, this is 1945. That book was written in, in like 20 years later, 25 years later almost. Right? But it still must have been very fresh in his mind to be able to recall that. Right? Part of this is just his temperament. This is just his way of being in the world. Right? But still, he's talking about many of the same events. He's fictionalizing them. The whole, the whole scenes on the boxcar, he talks about exactly, right? No sanitary conditions. Everybody couldn't sleep at the same time. Some people had to stand. Some people had to lay down. I mean, that's exactly what he talks about, which I think is really interesting. So just write down. What do you think? Are there differences and similarities in this letter and the novel? If you want to go back and read it on your own, you can. There's a PDF attached to the assignment. That's kind of all I was looking for. How long do we have? So we have a court assuming that they ring the bell when they're supposed to. About five minutes. Do you want to watch some of this John Green um, video? Or would you rather watch it on your own? And tomorrow we'll talk about Jim Jess. It's 10 minutes long, so we won't be able to finish it. But, or we could watch part now and watch part tomorrow. I don't really care. I think that's a really great job of summing up a bunch of stuff that happens in the book, especially if you have questions about anything. Because it's, you know, it's not like one of those books that ends with a, like a little bow tie on top. Bow, bow tie? Bow tie. Bow on top, not bow tie. <laughs> that would be weird. How about if we just watch it tomorrow? We'll try and try to still get through the Dembe Jess tomorrow. Is that cool? Because there's no assignment. I mean, I think it's listed as assignment, but it's literally just the video. You just, it's just watching the video. Because I think it does, especially before we move into the essay, it will help you sort of contextualize a bunch of all these different things happening. Okay. You guys are so quiet. I'm going to turn this off. I forgot it was on. <laughs>